0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather weekly to pursue God by studying His Word together. How can Christians find the motivation necessary to overcome the challenges of our modern culture and continue the mission that God has called us to? In Revelation, all things new, we'll discover a glorious description of the end of all things and the great kingdom to come. It's here we find motivation for our present challenges. Join us as we look to the end and find hope and strength for our mission in the present.
1: Thank you, thank you. You know what, guys? I missed you. I missed you. I had an opportunity to um, uh, go up to Traverse City yesterday, and I tanned on a beach for one hour and said, let's go back, get to preach tomorrow, because it's, it's been a couple weeks that I got to bring the word, and it just helps you be reminded how much you love your church family. And I just love you guys, and I want you guys to know that. And I wish, I wish, I wish that I was close with every single person in this room. Uh, But just know that even if we don't get to talk all the time, you are prayed for. You are prayed for by our elders, our church, and our staff. And we are so grateful to just be a church that comes together and get in the Word. And today's a family Sunday, so we got the kiddos in here. Yes. All right, kiddos, let's see who can be louder. Kiddos go, "woo) ooh! ooh. <laughs> Adults, let's show them how it's done. <laughs> wow, okay. That was, that was very strong. Okay. <laughs> it's on you. Raise the kids up on how the way they should go. So starts in the home. We talk about that. But I had someone last week come up to me and say, Pastor, that was one of the best sermons you've ever preached. I thought about it. I was like, it was a video message. I was like, come on now. Really? All right, let's jump into it, guys. So we've been talking end times. This is week two in our series, Revelation All Things New. And I'm excited because when you think about Revelation, So often, people think about the when. Okay, when's he coming back? When's Jesus returning? And so often, we forget about the what. And the what is what will happen, and what is this going to do in implications to our life? What will it be like when Jesus returns? And so it's so important for us today as a church to be affected, to be changed by the fact that when Jesus returns, no matter when it is, no matter which view on end times that we possess, whether we possess an end times lens of, of post-millennial or premillennial or amillennial or dispensationalist, whatever view we have, maybe some of those words mean nothing, that when Jesus returns, when he comes back, What will happen? We'll all be made new. All things will be made new. And so, even though we live in a world where it's like the Christian doom is happening, the United States has changed, and the amount of people that are giving their lives to Christ or not giving their lives to Christ is waning, and it's easy to get cynical, and I see it, and I watch it, and I know it. It's easy to just see this this doom and gloom when we as Christians are called to have a different disposition. We just see things different. And so no matter where we are on the spectrum of our view on end times, we all can agree by the end of the story that Jesus is coming back. And that when Jesus returns, he's going to put everything in the way it's supposed to be. And our bodies, as broken as they are, and our minds, as broken as they are, and our checkbooks as broke as they are, (laughs) everything will be made as it was always intended to be. Why? Because Jesus will defeat God's enemies. He's going to win. He's going to win, and we live in the wake Of his victory. So if he's going to defeat God's enemies, what does that mean for us today? Should that affect how we live, how we act, how we interact? Absolutely, it should. That should change our trajectory of how we approach this world. Because if that's the case and we live in that victory, it should only encourage us. To to live and be missional in a certain way. Be missional to our neighbors. Be missional to to our homes. To be unashamed. You know, we live in this this, this post-evangelistic stage where people think, man, evangelism? I ain't doing that. Go and tell in my neighbor about Jesus or go and tell my spouse or go and tell my friends and coworkers. We live in an age where people are like, hey, you just do you. You just do you. I'm not going to bring it up. If you bring it up, yeah, I'll talk about it. But what we see is that if we believe that Jesus is returning, it should impact the urgency that we live with for the world. Impact how we approach each conversation. And so today I want, to see, I want us to see two things about the second coming of Jesus that should impact our lives, that should impact the way we live. And the first one is to see the victorious king. I want us to see the victorious king. And so we're going to be in Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. If you remember last week, we talked about this great feast with the lamb, right? We talked about the feast of the lamb. And now we're going to talk, we're going to shift into a new feast in certain ways. But we're going to talk about in verse 11 through verse 17 to start, or verse 16, this image of heaven. So let's jump into it. Chapter 19, Revelation, we're going to have a lot of things I'm going to put on the projector today because it can get pretty confusing. Is anyone confused by Revelation? I know we got it all figured out. I I trust you guys have got it figured out. Come tell me after church and uh, and I'll uh, finally be enlightened. But this is what it says. Then I saw heaven opened. Remember who wrote Revelation? Anyone remember? John. Right? So John saw heaven opened. Okay, was there another time that he saw heaven? Does anyone remember another time he saw heaven? Nice try, Courtney, I love you. (laughs) Revelation chapter 4. If you remember Revelation chapter 4, the heavens opened up. I want us, the reason I point that out is because we're going to come back to that. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Go into verse 13, and this is what it says. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nation's. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's a lot going on here. Who here is confused or has some questions? Well, the reality is that when you talk about Revelation, there are some questions. And so let's go back to verse 11. Because it's important to know that when he saw heaven opened, there's a difference this time. In verse or chapter four, when the heavens were opened, John went up and he observed heaven. This time it's different. When heavens are opened, the heavens aren't just him going up to see, the heavens are opened, and now Jesus is returning. So before, it was all about him going to sea. Now they're opening for Jesus to return, to go from heaven to earth. Now as the heavens open, the time is coming for the end. Finally, the time has come. And you see here that he's faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. And it's important to know that this is speaking on his motive. Think about the world powers at the time, right now. What do we see? We see war with Russia. Why does Russia choose to go into Ukraine? Is it pure motive? Why do we have these tensions between China and Taiwan? Why do we see these things? Is it because they just love the Taiwanese and they want to minister to them? Motive has never been truly pure with world powers, right? And even at times where we think it is, maybe it's not. Well, the one we have as faithful and true is completely righteous, and he judges with complete faithfulness and accuracy. He's got good motives. He's got the right motives, and so when he comes to make things new, he has this white horse, and this is this beautiful image of a conquering warrior. You see this in ancient Rome and Greece, that an that image on a general or a king on a white horse is an image of a, a victorious conquest. It's an image that, that he has victory in his conquest. And unlike, again, other leaders He is one who comes with this conquest to judge the earth, to judge with righteousness and faithfulness. And so I think about that. And now as we get into some more descriptive parts of who Jesus is, I'm thinking about Revelation 19. I'm like, wow, this image of Jesus is much different than what I've learned in Sunday school. The image of what I see with Jesus is often different than... Than what I what I even teach from the stage sometimes, but in order for us to have an accurate view of who Jesus is, we must have a holistic view. Not just the gentle and kind Jesus and meek Jesus, the born and a major Jesus, but also the warrior king Jesus that we see in Revelation 19. So let's go ahead. I'm going to put some things up here and explain them. And I, put it, I wrote them out, so if anyone wants to take pictures, you can go ahead and do that because some of this can be very confusing. It says this about Jesus, descriptions of Jesus. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Okay, what does that mean? What does that mean? Does he have red contacts on? No. This shows that he is pure. Nothing can be hidden from the gaze of him. Jesus is all knowing. What else do we have? On his head are many diadems. His many diadems are a sign of his absolute authority, his dominion, his sovereignty. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. Jesus has all authority and all sovereignty, right? All authority has been given to me on heaven, in heaven and earth. All authority. He's completely in control, and the head full of diadems are an image of that. We see other descriptions of Jesus. What are some other descriptions? He has a name written that no one knows but himself. Okay? What is it? What is this language? What is this name that only, only he knows? Most believe this is a secret name that meaning the meaning's hidden from us from mankind. It points to the, the divinity of Christ and that there are things and aspects of God we will never know. There's mystery. He has a name that's been given that no one knows but himself. What else? We see other descriptors of Jesus. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. All right, I know we got elementary kids in here, right? What does this mean? He's Jesus, meek Jesus, kind, gentle Jesus, and now he's rocking around in the end with a robe dripping in blood? It's believed that Jesus, how he conquered his enemies by shedding his blood on the cross, but when he returns, he will conquer his enemies by shedding their blood. Jesus is the sacrificial savior, yes, by his blood, but there will be blood in his return. Other descriptors that we see, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. Right, like I think of those magic tricks. (laughs) They're like, whoop, 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 whoop. I don't know if anyone makes that noise, but the whole point is, they, they pull things, does he literally have a sharp sword coming out of his mouth? Right? No, As the word of God. We see descriptions that his, his word, it pierces. His word is true. Jesus carries out God's judgment on earth. He doesn't do it necessarily with physical violence or just physical violence, but declaring God's judgment by the word of Of his mouth. We'll get a little more into that later. Two more. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So you have this image of an iron rod. To rule with an iron scepter, it means to destroy rather than govern sternly. So not just like a stick, a shepherd's staff, hey, get in line, get in line. The the scepter, the iron scepter is not just to keep people in check. It's a weapon of destruction. It's strong and unyielding in its mission of judgment. So he doesn't come to whip us around. He comes to get things in order and with judgment. And then on his robe and his thigh is a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is Jesus being affirmed as the greatest of all kings, all lords. Jesus is king and lord. It's a lot, right? A lot of descriptions that you're like, what in the world does that mean? And if anyone wants to have those or didn't take a picture, I'll send you over my sermon notes. Just email me. The the whole point is this, though. That these descriptions are true. The Revelation 19 Jesus is the same as the Luke 1 Jesus. Let me tell a story. I played college with a guy named Tyler. I was a freshman, and uh, here's this guy. Tyler's the starting center for the basketball team, and I remember meeting him, and um, I was like, man, am I hanging out with Mr. Rogers? Like, he, uh, I hope he's watching online. I love Tyler. And, and he has such a calm, peaceful voice. And he's like, hello. <laughs> Are you a freshman? I'm like, yeah, yes, I am. You know, nice to meet you. Good. Want to play on the basketball team? I'm like, Can you speak a little faster, man? You know, rest in peace, Mr. Rogers. We all love you. But the thing is this. It, he was this guy. I was like, if this is our center for a basketball team, we're going to be in trouble. If you know anything about basketball, centers, they're supposed to be brutes. They're punishers. They set picks that you second guess if you're going to go around them again. They do all the dirty work. They throw elbows where elbows shouldn't be. They get rebounds. They're the people that set the tone in so many ways. So many people think it's the point guard. You got to look for that center. And you look at the different people in the league the different, the Ben Wallace's, the Dekumbe Matumbos, all these people that maybe you do or don't know. But the whole point is you need your center to not be soft. And so I remember coming as a freshman, like, man, oh man, oh man, is this our center? We ain't going to win a game. We're we'll going to lose everything. until I got on the basketball court with him. <laughs> Mr. Rogers went bye-bye. <laughs> I was straight up petrified of this human. He would hit you. He would snarl at you. He would foul you. I was like, who is this guy? And I'm not sure if it's politically correct, but we called him no longer Tyler, but Psycho T. Okay? Okay? <laughs> Because when he got on that court, he changed. And he was a different person. He wasn't the biggest, he wasn't the most athletic, but he was exactly what we needed him to be. Why do I bring up Tyler, <laughs> aka Psycho T? Because I bet most people in this room have never thought of Jesus, the Revelation 19 Jesus, as the Lord that we serve. And we just completely skim over the fact that this is just as much Jesus as the kind, gentle, meek Jesus. You know, again, we predominantly see the washing feet full of grace, non-judgmental, walking with a blue sash, Jesus. And that is all him. But when Jesus comes again, he's not coming as a gentle baby He's coming as a victorious warrior king. When he comes again, he will come for victory. And so with us today, it's important for us to remember that Jesus, the victorious king Jesus, that is just as much the same Jesus as he is today as he was 2,000 years ago and at the beginning of time. And sometimes we just don't want to think about that because, man, that's, that's a little different than I thought. But you have to remember, if this is Jesus returning, warrior king, with, with a sword coming out of his mouth, right, of his word, what does that do for us today? How does that affect you and how does that affect me and how does that affect the way we live? Well, what did Jesus say last? He had this statement that we know as the, the great commission. Right? What does a commission mean? To be commissioned. To be commanded. To be called. Like, what if your boss came to you and said, hey, I need you to do this. And you're like, no. What happens? You're fired. Okay, I'm not saying... Jesus is going to fire us. But the thing is this. The, the thing is, there's a, there's a difference between a command, commission. That we were commanded to do what? To go make disciples of all the nations. And, and there's this trend right now. That's like, hey, I'm not going to step in someone's world. I'm not going to make them uncomfortable. I'm I'm not going to be that assertive religious person. I'm not going to uh, be that person that, you know, always is bringing up the Bible. Uh, But when I read the Great Commission, I see a different tone that Jesus tells us to live by. He says, go, make disciples of all the nations. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. I'm with you to the end of the age. So you see, the same God, the victorious King of Revelation 19, has given us his authority to go out into the world and bring as many people as possible into his kingdom before the great day of his second coming. So, how are we supposed to live? We're supposed to live with that mode. As many, as many as possible, we want to be saved until he returns. You know, it's fascinating because we have in here Hebrews 4.12. Everyone look at Hebrews 4.12. This is what it says. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword Piercing to the division of the soul and the joints of marrow. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Remember I said I was going to come back to the word? It's interesting because the sword of the spirit is what was used against the schemes of the devil. So we see here the word of God, whether Jesus was in the wilderness or whether it's fighting against the enemy with the armor of God. Again, the only offensive weapon mentioned was the word of God. See the pattern? There's one thing that consistently defeats the devil over and over and over again. It's God's word. And so we go out in the name of Jesus, and we take the word with us. We have it written on our heart. We know it. We memorize it. We meditate on it. Because this will help us overcome our enemy. You have the archangel Michael. And he's disputing with Satan. He just says the word, the Lord rebuke you. You have these images, these, these interactions. Our power is in his word. Second thing we see about the second coming of Jesus is we see a victorious battle. We see a victorious king, now we see a victorious battle. This is what it says in verse 17. Let's throw it up there. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. He said, come, come. Gather for the great supper of God. It's interesting, right? Remember the first part of chapter 19? is a great feast with the lamb. There's going to be this great supper. And now there's another supper coming. Only thing is the wicked are the main dish. It says this, to eat the flesh of the king's the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. So we have this image here of this, of this great feast, and all of this is mentioned before the battle even occurs. That's how much assurance we have. this angel standing in the sun. Were they literally standing in the sun? Uh, when I was reading through and studying, uh, most people believe standing in the sun doesn't mean literally standing in the sun. It means that, that this angel illuminated and shined so bright, it was like they were looking at the sun. And, and they, they came shining with brilliance. And then they used this large, this loud voice and directed the birds to gather for the great supper. Go on to verse 19 and following. This is what it says. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs of which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were, known, were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So we chose a great, great message for the elementary ministry to be in, guys. <laughs> Wonderful. Gorge with the flesh. Okay. Plan this out swimmingly, all right? Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Okay, so let's, uh, let's try to segue from this one. <laughs> so we see this image. Guys, this is Armageddon, right? This is a great battle. If you want to write a little note in your Bible, this, this kind of is in, in connection with, with Revelation 16, right? In Revelation 16, we, we see this image Of this great, great battle. And as we said, this feast that's happening in Armageddon that is about to occur, it's where the beast, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies, they've gathered for war against Jesus and his armies. Right? And so you see this. The Antichrist has gathered the world's armies to come against the Messiah and in this culmination, as we also see in Revelation 16, specifically verse 13 through 14, where the three demonic spirits were released from the mouth of the dragon, which was Satan, the beast, which was the Antichrist, and the false prophet, to assemble the kings of the world for this great battle. And so I think about this this moment, and then here we have this image of Jesus and His armies. But do you notice something? What are, what are Jesus' armies dressed in? Does anyone remember? White robes. White linens. That's not military gear. If they're the armies of the Lord, shouldn't they have shields and swords and breastplates? Shouldn't they be dressed for battle? Not with Jesus. There's no need. This isn't a toe-to-toe battle like, oh man, Jesus is winning now. Oh, now Satan's winning now. Or or, or we got to flank them on the side. When the armies of the Lord go out for this battle, they don't even need to rock any gear. Because Jesus is going to win. It's not even a fight. The battle is over before it even begins. You read the Bible and you think, okay, you know, I've watched movies and and cinematically this might happen and that might happen. No. The battle with the redeemed, those who are armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him on the white horse. The battle's not dependent on them. The battle's not dependent on you or me. I'm not gonna go hit the weights in heaven and get jacked. <laughs> Hopefully that just happens automatically. Whoa, <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, wow. <laughs> <laughs> or grow a couple more inches taller, right? <laughs> the whole point is they don't fight in the battle, but rather walk in the wake. Of the battle victory. We're not needed to win. Because the battle is already won. So much so, hey birds, get ready. You hungry? You're going to be. There wasn't even a fight needed. This is significant. Because this should impact the way we live today. This should impact... How we look at our own lives with victory and joy because the battle has already been won. Even though we haven't fully experienced this reality yet, we know that it's going to come to be true. We believe that. I love this verse from Colossians. This is what it says. And you... Guys, the check cleared. Our debt has been paid. That weight that we carry, that shame, that guilt, it's been covered. The record of debt that stood against us has been nailed to the cross. And I'm telling you guys, our debt, we got a long list. If you're like me, you got a long list. (laughs) I have failed as a husband, as a pastor, as a father, as a Christian, and my debt is no different than yours. It still needs to be nailed to the cross. And he disarmed the enemy, put them in check by triumphing over them in him. That was the cross. But when he comes back, He's coming back as a warrior king, and the battle will be won, and we walk in the wake of this victory. Yes, we were all dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive together with him, clothed us with him. You know, I think about this time, Memorial Day, right? Memorial weekend. People paid a cost. They they died for us. We, We know that. And, and, and even though certain generations have experienced war more than others. And I was thinking about it. If you're 50 and younger, you haven't had the same experience as those prior generations. You didn't have major world conflict to the same scale as a World War II, as a Korean War, as a Vietnam There's always been wars happening, but never to the same scale. I was thinking about even myself. There's been war, but there hasn't been those massive casualties that prior generations have experienced. But that doesn't make their sacrifice any less important. That people have lived and served and died for us in our nation. I found this story that really spoke to me. And um, it was about a lady who was married, her name was Clara Gant, and Clara Gant married Joseph Gant of the U.S. Army, and he was shipped off to the Korean War in 1950. So soon after, she found out that he was captured and missing in action. So she constantly was checking in, seeing, hey, is he coming back, is he coming back? Even though she continued to go to the government and check in any reports, anything new, they never had a report of of finding him. And so she lived with the covenant of she was going to stay committed to him until death do us part. And she didn't know whether he was living or dead, so she never chose to remarry When she was 94 years old, his body was finally brought home. People were asking her, why did you remarry? 94 years old, and you you could have remarried. She said, actually, Joseph said if if he died to remarry. He said he wanted that for me. But I promised him till death do us part, and I never knew. So I was going to stay true, to that commitment, she said she even paid for landscaping care, that entirety, uh, the entirety of her life, because she wanted if he to come if he came home, for him to not worry about any landscaping or honeydews, but just get his fishing pole and boat and go fishing. She said, "I'm going to remain his wife until the day the Lord calls me home," and she stayed faithful to the end. As believers, we are waiting for his return. In, in this case with, with Mrs. Clara Gant, she long waited, but at the end was, was sorrow, sadness, discouragement. But our wait is not with sorrow. It's with joy. It's, it's with Freedom. As we see the victorious battle of Jesus on that last day, let it compel us to live here and now different. Let's not live lukewarm, complacent, safe lives, but live courageous, bold, not afraid to be the hands and feet of Christ. And so I'll come back to that question I mentioned in the beginning. Does what we believe about the return of Christ impact how we live today? Because it should. It should change a lot. Because that battle has been won. We don't walk hoping there's victory. We walk behind the white horse of victory. What is it in our life that needs to be impacted by this truth? Let's pray. Father, again, we live under your authority in the victory. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. May that change how we live today. I think about this wife who was looking, constantly searching for information about her husband, eagerly waiting his return. We eagerly wait your return, but we also know that in this time, there are many who don't know you, many who don't believe in you. Let not one go without hearing your name, hearing your gospel. God, use us, use your bride, use your church that the world may hear about the victory we shared this morning. We love you. We pray this all in your name. Amen.
0: Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.